Welcome to the Wander Learn Podcast. I'm your host, Francis Tapon. In this episode, I interview Stephen P. Williams, the author of The Blockchain, The Next Everything. You might have heard the blockchain, you might have heard of cryptocurrencies or Bitcoin. Well, they're all kind of related, and yet there's a lot of mystery about them. There's a lot of misinformation, a lot of things that people don't know about them. So I want to interview an expert who knows a lot about the topic, and that's Stephen Williams, who just came out with his new book called Blockchain, The Next Everything. We talk a lot about not just Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, but how can the actual technology be used on a practical level? What are some of the problems that it really solves? This is a topic that I find fascinating because I do believe some of the hype that it will, in fact, have some devastating consequences, some real big game changers in various industries, but not everything. And some of it is certainly overhyped. So we get into some of the ins and outs of this fascinating technology called blockchain. I wanted to start off with just a simple question because a lot of people may not have any idea like what is a blockchain. So if you're in an elevator in New York, long elevator, <laughs> where you're going up to the top the World Trade Center, um, and you have a chance to answer a simple question, which is what is blockchain? What would you say? Well, I would say that blockchain is a way of storing information that's secure. And the reason that it's secure is because it's distributed on uh, the computers or devices of everyone who is attached to that chain. Okay. And that's different than a traditional database, let's say an Oracle database, so the stuff that runs banks and they don't necessarily ha they do have duplicate copies though right i mean i mean in other words bank of america or citibank uh or the airlines they have databases that have multiple copies don't they well i would hope that they would yeah have multiple <laughs> copies and back up their information um and I, i'm sure they do but with the distributed system uh everyone who participates in the in the chain has the opportunity to have an equal say in what happens on that chain and also to keep track of all the information on that chain. Could you say that the blockchains that private companies, let's say an airline has, is a just a private blockchain, in other words, their database, or is it fundamentally a different technology than a simple database or a relational or SQL database or you know databases that we've been using for decades now? Yeah, the, the enterprise blockchains are, are interesting because they are closed. You have to be invited to join them. But they also allow access to information in a, in a way that the traditional databases don't. So, uh, and it really depends on how the company is using that. But they give the opportunity, especially like on a supply chain, for the people who are considered at the uh, lower end of the chain, the initial producers of materials, to participate and, and see what happens to that material along the chain. And I think that that probably isn't happening yet so robustly, but I think in the future it's going to give the, say, the palm, palm oil producer, uh, small-scale palm oil producer, the opportunity to actually contribute creatively to how that oil is, is marketed or used in the United States. They would also see what the price of their product is, how it goes up along the chain, which I think could have a big influence uh, in the future. Why did you write Blockchain, The Next Everything, the book that just came out in 2019 here? Well, I've, I've been a writer all my life and also uh, uh, very interested in business as a way of uh, affecting social change, especially for carbon reduction and having to do with climate change. 
And I went back to get my MBA in sustainability when I was 57 years old uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, in, in one of my first classes, I heard the word blockchain. I didn't know what it was. And I started looking into it, and I was completely captivated by it, which happens to some people. I don't know why. It's a, a curse or a blessing. <laughs> there, there's even an expression about it. It's like going down the rabbit hole. We all use it. Yeah, yeah I, w I went way down the rabbit hole, and uh, I still actually am still there. Um, and so I, I became fascinated by the, the potential uh, for for all kinds of things, including ethical sourcing, efficiency, egalitarian distribution of uh, power, um, the, the use of um, financial, the, the ability to broadcast financial instruments to people who don't, aren't currently banked, especially in developing countries. It just seemed like an endless possibility. And the more I looked into it, uh, the more I realized that every, almost everything I read without exception was pretty dull, and pretty intimidating. And so I'm used to reading stuff like that as a journalist, and it's kind of my specialty is to take uh, challenging information and make it uh, for a general audience. So I, after I had studied this for a couple of years, I decided that I would write a book that I thought was very much needed, which would l let people ex experience blockchain rather than just read um, a textbook about blockchain. So I wrote a book that's full of narrative, full of stories, and full of uh, uh, anecdotes that I hope will help people understand uh, the potential of blockchain. You're the perfect person, therefore, for me to ask this question that's been nagging me for a long time about Bitcoin. <laughs> so, I, you know, you study sustainability, and, and I am curious about the whole topic as well. And mm -hmm. one thing that I've read over and over again, and I don't know if at this point it's a myth or not, is that one transaction of Bitcoin will consume the same amount of energy that 30 households use, American households use in a day or something like, uh, I believe that was the, right. the number. Have you heard the statistic? I've heard so many different statistics that it's, it's uh, disturbing to me the, the amount, you know, how information flies around that is unsubstantiated or, or, or created maybe with um, with bad information. I, I it is true that Bitcoin uses inordinate amounts of energy, and it's a real problem. But someone asked me the other day. They said that they had heard that Bitcoin right now uses more electricity than the entire world combined uses. Okay, well, we know that's and true. So, that's not true. <laughs> we know that's right. Not true. So, so that showed me that um, you know it, it it's definitely something that needs to be worked out. So um, I, I don't have, sorry to interrupt, but, but there was one place I heard that it was uh, it's getting close to I think it's either Denmark or the Netherlands, somewhere around one of those countries nearby there. It's getting close to that level of electricity usage. Yes, and I think that 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 is is the, the one figure that I think is probably most close to accurate. Mm -hmm. But there are a few uh, a few caveats um, with talking about. Bitcoin and electricity. And I, I want to start by saying I don't own any Bitcoin, and that's because of this problem. I don't find it ethical. But um, And one more I, thing, I uh, just to, to, to yeah. also clarify, is that a lot of people don't realize that blockchain, which is what the subject of your book is, Bitcoin is just one manifestation of hundreds of different possibilities of blockchain. Yeah, right. Blockchain was created to support Bitcoin, but... Blockchain has many, many other uses. Right. 
So, um, but it's kind of, it's kind of like, say, sorry, it's kind of like saying that, uh, I don't know, yahoo.com is the internet. It's just one manifestation of the internet. Right. It's one application built right. on top of it. So, um, the, there's one, one, a couple of thoughts I have about Bitcoin and electricity. Um, the, the higher the price of Bitcoin, the more competition there is to so-called mine Bitcoins, create Bitcoins out of thin air, basically. And that's done by running a lot of computers. And so people have made consortiums of computers. Um, but they're, they're situated generally not in the middle of, say, Utah, where they have to use electricity from a coal-fired power plant. They're, most of them are in China, and most of them are next to renewable resources because the electricity is cheaper, such as hydro plants are very popular. They're also located in cooler countries so that there's not as much uh, cooling charge. But they still use it. You know, you have to sort of look at where the source of the electricity is in order to gauge the depth of the, the problem. But the other thing that I find really interesting is um, a lot of cryptocurrency people believe that uh, Bitcoin, Ether, and other types of coins will become the currencies of the world in the future, will replace the U.S. dollar, the euro, and other, other currencies. Now, if that were to happen, um, all the trading of Bitcoin is done electronically through your computers or phones or whatever. And there would um, uh, there would be no more need for ATMs, banks, etc. Um, and imagine the amount of electricity that banks use in our day-to-day -day lives. I mean, look around. There are banks everywhere, and people are driving to banks. People, Bank executives are flying around the world, and... Um, I think anytime with sustainability, anytime you look at a system, it's hard to just isolate one aspect of it, and you have to look at the effects of the of the whole thing. So while I am concerned about Bitcoin and electricity usage, I'm not. Um, I don't buy all these figures. Okay, uh, getting back to that one transaction, you know, how much one transaction of Bitcoin consumes. What confused me about that thing, assuming the statistic was right, and again, I know you're kind of questioning mm -hmm. whether it is even right, is that, that let's say, it consumes the 30 households. When I, I do actually own Bitcoin, full disclosure, and a few other yes. cryptocurrencies, by the way, um, I think four other different cryptocurrencies, but not, most of it's Bitcoin. I think 80% 80, 80 or so of what I have is in Bitcoin. Um, and when I make a transaction, when I, make, when I purchase Bitcoin or send Bitcoin, the fee that they charge me is pennies, pennies. Right. I mean, it's really not that expensive. I mean, at the the height of the bubble in 2017, I think it was in January, wherever it was, they charged, I think, $50 per transaction. That was a crazy, because there just wasn't a much as much uh, supply of miners out there to do it. And so they, mm -hmm. the, the rate went up. But, but on... Most of the life of Bitcoin, it's pennies, most a dollar that they're going to charge you. And so that's what just made me doubt that statistic about it consuming one household worth of, uh, sorry, 30 households worth of energy in a day, one transaction. So if I send you one dollar, Stephen, supposedly it consumes 30 households worth of energy. <laughs> it just, then how could they only charge me? you know, 80 cents $1. to send you or whatever. Do you see well, what I mean? So you, also, you also have to factor into that that um, when that transaction is put into a block, maybe uh, 2,000 transactions are put into that block. And mm -hmm. when that block is closed, the person using the electricity doing the mining receives a quantity of Bitcoins. 
a number which has has changed over time. But that's where the value is for the miner. Really, is is in that. And at the peak of the of the Bitcoin bubble, um, I think one closing one block would earn you almost a quarter million dollars worth of Bitcoin. So there was that whole value. But an interesting thing is, like other uh, methods are being created to uh, secure these coins, to um, make a consensus around the transactions, and um, some of those are being done by Ether and by other companies. And and one is um, uh, is one that is just where people are rewarded with fees. Um, another is that there are people who will put up a certain amount of money to show that they're the ones who get to close the transaction. There are, there are all sorts of new methods being developed. Right. Also, at some point, there are only, I think, 21 million Bitcoins programmed into the system. So when those are all uh, so-called mined, um, Bitcoin will just go to a fee-based system. And, and we don't really know what that will be, but it, it, the use of electricity will drop significant, significantly at that point. Yeah, but that's way out in 2140. <laughs> yeah, that's a way sound. Yeah. <laughs> By then we'll have fusion power. Yeah. So speaking of the different methods, my understanding is that you have basically two fundamental popular methods. One is proof of work, which is what Bitcoin uses, and uh, Monero and many other cryptocurrencies. Uh, and then there's proof of stake, um, right. which is what ETH, Ethereum wants to use. Uh, it's trying to get there, but it hasn't got there yet as of middle of 2019. Exactly so, right. Yeah, um, that's true. Do you, uh, now, from my understanding is that people say, well, okay, proof of work, yes, it consumes far more energy. Uh, I think proof of stake has been said takes 1% of the energy that a proof of work algorithm requires. But, say, the defenders of proof of work so they say that, okay, yes, it consumes much more energy, but it's far more secure. What do you think? Right. Um, I think it is more. It is more solidly secure at this point. But I do proof think of that. Work. Um, yeah, proof of work. But um, I also think that the people working with Ethereum and developing the alternatives are very smart and are moving to the future. I mean, our society is. Uh, uh, in the U.S., at least, is completely polarized now around almost every issue, and that ex that extends to the the cryptocurrency world. And you know, the Bitcoin they call themselves Bitcoin maximalists will stick by Bitcoin come hell or high water, and and always find a reason to put down uh, ether. So I ha I honestly uh, have a lot of faith in the minds that um, at that are working on Ethereum right now. Mm -hmm. And um, I believe that, that they have a variety of different um, methods that they're pursuing, and I, I think, it will, think it will work out. When we talk about other blockchains outside of cryptocurrencies, um, what method are they using? They're not using proof of work. They're not using proof of or are they using proof of stake? What's, I mean, what is the popular methodology of, of sharing their database, of a public database? So I the oh with public databases yeah i think they're they're generally using either proof of work or proof of stake and the the um ibm is doing a lot of work with enterprise blockchains and they don't have the the same issue because they have their built-in trust the proof of stake and proof of work are what allows you to trust the validity of the information that's stored on the chain and if you're working with an enterprise blockchain, you don't have that exact same problem because it's controlled within a system. 
Okay, they, because they're they, 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 they assign you as being one of the authorities. They just say by fiat, right. bam. So you. in a way, in a way, it's a centralized, distributed mm -hmm. system. If that makes right. any sense. Right. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. So, so that's the the rub. So let's dive into a, a little bit about the different ways that we could be using blockchain and how it could affect because in some ways you got to wonder whether blockchain is going to be just another one of these technologies like flying cars you know the the thing that just never actually happens you don't have <laughs> one <laughs> well it's called the helicopter i suppose i guess we do <laughs> um but uh but basically we don't have uh we've been talking about flying cars forever we've been talking about vr virtual reality forever and it never really seems mm. to truly catch on and become completely mainstream and so right. my question is Stephen, do you think as an author of a book about blockchain do you think blockchain is also going to be potentially one of these overhyped technologies that just never seems to see the light of day or is maybe 30 40 years off when we keep thinking it's around the corner that's a, that's a great question because, um, again, uh, talking about that polarization, there are a lot of people who seem to have a lot at stake in, in promoting the idea that blockchain is, is a basically totally hyped and a worthless technology. And they populate Twitter in a heavy way, and um, uh, you know, I'm exposed to them on Medium and different articles. Um, I, I feel that nobody knows yet how blockchain is going to play out. And I'm not going to going to say that it will completely transform the world or transform all industries, but I certainly think that we need to give it a chance and uh, try to, instead of, I think a lot of the people who are opposed to blockchain, first of all, expect it to be working perfectly right now with a high rate of transactions and, and um, ease of use and great user interfaces, but they, that's kind of a, a big request for a fairly new, very complex technology. And I think we need to give it time. And people, um, one, one thing I see now that I think is a problem is that people, there are a lot of people who try to take blockchain technology and distributed ledgers and make them fit into their current way of doing business rather than looking at blockchain and distributed technologies as a perhaps a new paradigm, a new way of looking at business and society and the organization of value, and looking trying to invent new ways of, of doing business, new ways of running governments, and new ways of communicating. And that's the direction that I'm going in. Uh, and I do think that when you, when you try to fit... Uh, you know, a round circle in a square box or, or, or the other way around, um, you have a lot of trouble. I think that's a big issue right now with blockchain. You, you're talking about how distributed systems might impact the world. Uh, where besides, obviously the number one application, you know, people ask me like with the internet, the, the killer app was email. That was the first thing that really revolutionized and made things useful. Well, the internet was email uh, for Blockchain, the killer app, has been so far Bitcoin or at least cryptocurrencies more broadly. What do you think is the next low-hanging fruit in the blockchain technology? What comes after email in the sense? Well, I think there are several low-hanging fruit that are being pursued now. One, curiously enough, I think is the art world, which is really leading the way in terms of blockchain and intellectual property. So right now, when an artist sells his or her work, 
um, the, it, it, they lose all possession of it. it. They have no ownership stake in it anymore, for the most part. Uh, blockchain allows artists to sell their work with using smart contracts, uh, which are algorithmic contracts on a blockchain that are basically run automatically. Humans don't have to be involved with them. To, the, to insist that when their work is resold by whoever buys it, whoever purchases it, that they receive, a, say, a 10% royalty on that, which I think is a, a great boon for, for artists and people who make intellectual property. Um, another thing is that in the art world, blockchain is being used very actively right now to track provenance of artworks. So um, theft and um, um, uh, forgery is a gigantic problem in the art world. Some people say that 50% of artwork sold is fake. And so if the artist were to create a work um, uh, and then register it on the blockchain, it becomes... Uh, official and recorded and every every piece of data about transactions with that artwork damage to that artwork anything will be available um, instantly on blockchain so insurers can look at that museums can look at that potential purchasers can look at that i just think there's a tremendous uh, technology and in addition um, there's a there's a business called dada and dada.nyc that is using uh, blockchain technology to provide universal basic income to artists who participate in their system. And it's very interesting. You go on and you draw and you share drawings with people around the world. And if you sell them, you get a percentage of the sale. Um, the artists you've engaged with get a percentage. And then everyone else on the system also gets a percentage of your sale. So it's a it's a new economic model, which I think is fascinating and I think will be very influential on other economic models going forward. That is very interesting, Stephen. Now, help for people who are watching or listening to this, help explain how that actually works on a practical level. Let's say I'm a painter or I'm a writer mm -hmm. or and I have a work of art. Let's just stick with painting because that is easy. How do I then either make sure that I don't get forgeries? How does the blockchain, you, you know, help me prevent forgeries on a practical level? Like what's step one? Okay. Step one is I make the, the painting, I sign it. And then what's step two? Okay. So if it's a physical painting, a traditional painting, you would, um, you would take a photograph of that work and there's a special type of photography that can be taken that, that will record the work in a very specific way and you take that digital image of the work and you uh, go to a website on the internet, enter that information, that, that digital image, and it will create a cryptographic code that represents that image at the point of creation. That cryptographic code is, you know, a, a bunch of letters and numbers. You can't take that code and create the painting from it. But you can store that code on a blockchain. And then if someone 10 years down the road has a painting for sale, they say that it's your painting number one, right? The one that you registered on the blockchain. The new buyer can do the same cryptographic hash of that painting that they're being presented with. And if it is even slightly different, it will create a new code and you'll know that it's a forgery. So the, the painting itself obviously is not stored electronically on the blockchain, but a code that represents the original edition of that painting is stored. So that's, 
That's how you can do it for almost any physical object. If it's a novel, you can just scan your ver first version of the novel onto the it through the cryptographic hash generator, and it, it will do the same thing. If it's a digital image, it, it, this is really very new and uh, very interesting to me. Right now, <clears throat> anyone can cut and paste a di digital image, print it out, put it on their wall, put it on their website. It happens all the time. But with blockchain, you can create what's called rare digital art. And when I first heard this term, it kind of blew me away because I was I just like, this is insane. This is this whole idea of rare digital art. But the more I uh, work with it and the more I also buy it sometimes is, um, so you create a digital image and then you hash that and put it on a, a blockchain. It, it's attached to a token. That token contains the code and, and the information. So that image has more value than any copy of that image because it's the first image that was created. It's the original. Um, and people really respect that and, and value that. There is a market for rare digital art. And if people who don't believe that, you can tell them the case of Crypto Kitties. Crypto Kitties were, um, I think, these are these little uh, funny cartoon cats that are created from uh, one image and you can buy accessories for them and they can be bred with each other. And the value, uh, I think last year they, they were so popular that they crashed the Ethereum blockchain and the value of one kitty was... I think around $100,000. There are also crypto punks that came before the crypto kitties. And um, yeah, there's all, all kinds of things. So let me just put that in perspective for people who are watching or listening to this. I mean, somebody paid $100,000 or more for a digital image of a kitty that was unique, that nobody could copy. They but you know, by the way, I remember reading some controversy that they actually don't even even own it. Like the the company that makes the crypto kitties, still somehow in the license agreement has ownership, and that these guys are basically just have are the sole uh, user or whatever of that image, something like that. So yeah, that's very a great point, which is something I've been thinking about a lot. They own the code that shows that, that it's it's their kitty, but they don't own the software that translates that code into an image. So you're you're very you're very right about that. And I find that to be a difficult concept. There's a good reason for it because that image might be made up of several different images. If you buy accessories for your cat, that's another image and somebody needs to take care of that and track it and but um, yeah you, you're buying you're buying the code. So if the company goes out of business you might not ever be able to see that crypto kitty again, but I'm not sure that um, in this new world, the code might be more important than the image. There's an artist named Kevin Abash who sold the the code for a photograph of a flower, a pretty regular standard photograph of a rose, I think, for a million dollars. He never gave the person the image; he just gave them the the, the hash. Wow. So, um, you know, there, there's, a, there's a lot going on with that. I recently um, bought, uh, there's an artist named Eve uh, Ensler, and she's a video artist, and I, uh, I'm sorry, Sussman, and I, I recently bought, she took the final copy of an art video she had made 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and she turned it into things that she called atoms, into 3,000 different atoms. So the art video is broken up into little tiny bits of information. And I bought three of those for $120 a piece. 
and there are you know 2,800 other people who who own those. And if they want to show the the, the entire video, they have to get permission from all of us to use our little cell of the movie, and they do that through, with smart contracts. Um, I bought it as an investment, actually. I, I think that the, that it will go up in value because it's an early entry into this type of art. Wow! But um, yeah, there's there's all kinds of stuff going on. It and this what fascinates me about you, Stephen, is that you've written a book about blockchain. <laughs> the next, you know, and yet you don't own any Bitcoin. It just seems so contradictory. <laughs> <laughs> I've never been into cryptocurrency. I'm, I'm not. I'm not that into uh, into um, playing with money. You know, I like money as much as anyone else, but I'm not that into playing with money. But I do own um, Ether and Litecoin. Okay. Those two. Okay. So why, so why why Ether and Litecoin? Uh, by the way, for those who are listening, I don't know. Uh, these are two top five or maybe certainly top 10 ether is number two and 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 litecoin is something around the fifth most popular cryptocurrency mm-hmm. so ether because i i have a lot of faith in um in the people who are involved with the ethereum blockchain and also in a company called consensus that just does a lot of interesting work with uh with ethereum and because they were cheaper than bitcoins too, I like to own whole coins rather than partial okay. <laughs> coins. And um, I didn't, I didn't start looking into buying a cryptocurrency until the price of Bitcoin was quite high. Um, and then there were, the, and so Ether, I, I, you know, I just really think is uh, has a lot of potential. And it's also useful for buying art, and I'm interested in buying art, digital art, rare digital art, and other collectibles. And um, Litecoin I bought purely as a speculative thing because uh, I liked the price and I thought it was going to go up. It did go up and then it went way, way down. And I bought more when it's way, way down because I think it will go back up. And I bought Ether recently also because I think it will go back up. Um, I am re- I'm very tempted to buy Bitcoin right now. It, it's... Um, uh, the, the more I've thought about the electricity issue, maybe I've talked myself into thinking that it's not as big a deal, but I'm, I do think it's a, I do think it's going to go be a very valuable commodity in the future. Right. Now, um, and, now, so one of the things that discouraged you from buying Bitcoin originally was simply the electricity usage. Was that one of it? Yeah, I felt it was unethical. Everything I read about it, I, and um, I don't like to do things that I right i struggle with the same issue um and that's what i was telling you is that i just didn't see how it was possible that was consuming as much energy per transaction as as i was as they were saying but if it were true then it just seemed completely unsustainable it just seemed like this Mm -hmm. is ludicrous it just can't actually continue and it will have to be changing and by the way ethereum and i think litecoin are also proof of work yes um, and so they're both energy hogs as well. I mean, they just they they consume less energy as a whole because they don't have the market capitalization and the number of the huge right. network that Bitcoin has. But how did you jump over that ethical hurdle? No, I, I realize that that they both consume less, but it's the same hurdle I think we all face every day in our lives of uh, less rather than than more. It's it's hard to be perfect in this world. I mean, the, honestly, the U.S. dollar consumes a lot of electricity, too. Sure, uh, sure. Peop- In this whole debate between crypto and the dollar, people seem to see the dollar as a benign force in the universe. And 
uh, something that, you know, they don't... People talk about crypto being used by criminals. Uh, I, I mean, just look at who uses the U.S. dollar, criminals and thieves. And, right, you know, but, it's, it's, but a lot of crypto enthusiasts also kind of reinforce the idea that the dollar is a relatively benign thing by calling their currencies stable coins based on the dollar. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and that's a, that's a fairly new phenomenon and, and one that, that I'm, I'm still thinking about. I, I can't quite decide what my position is on those stable coins. I mean, it's very interesting. The one Genesis that was started by the Winklevoss twins and, and other stable coins. Um, I, I'm just not sure of their value, and, uh, but I don't want to discount them. Yeah, so for those who are scratching their head wondering what the hell we're talking about, um, stable coins are, again, just like a cryptocurrency, or, but the only thing is that it's tied one-to-one -one for to the U.S. dollar. So when the U.S. dollar goes up, the stable coin goes up, and when it goes down, it just mimics the trajectory of the of the dollar. And there's several. There's one called Tether, another one called USD mm -hmm. coin, another one, the, the Genesis one that you... Uh, the, uh, or is it uh, Gemini one? I forget. Sorry, Gemini one. Yeah, Gemini. Yeah, sorry. <clears throat> and uh, and and but the idea is that implicitly in the idea is that the dollar is a stable currency, which of course, mm -hmm. in many respects, it is certainly compared to Venezuelan Bolivar or whatever. But right. um, but at one point, it's almost guaranteed, given the monetary history, that the U.S. dollar will. Not necessarily collapse, but have a, a tremendous uh, fluctuation. It's inevitable. It will happen. So suddenly, those "quote unquote" stable coins will be just as unstable as this wildly fluctuating dollar. Uh, and then all of a sudden, people might flood to the "quote unquote" unstable coins like Bitcoin or Ethereum or, or Litecoin. Yeah, um, if that if that does happen, I, I think it's been quite quite a long time since the US dollar was that you know volatile that's volatile as cryptocurrency but yeah we'll, we'll have to see um it does seem that r right now in, in the current like we're in the age of institutions collapsing and changing before our eyes and uh, with with very little explanation you know i think that the current political situation in the US is is a giant shift that no one predicted and that um, took us by surprise. Uh, the, the loss of, um, you know, uh, the music industry changing so dramatically, books changing dramatically, uh, you know, all kinds of huge corporations closing. It's, it's uh, a, you know, a big shift. And I suppose that the current, our currency that we think is so, so stable and secure could change uh, dramatically too. I mean, I I see it as a currency that's backed by Chinese debt, and and uh, who knows what will happen with that. I'm going to try something, Stephen. Now that I haven't tried before, and I hope it works technologically. If I lose you, it's going to be crazy. I'm going to share a screen right now on for those who are watching on YouTube. And can you see it yourself, Stephen? Okay, great. Um, so w for those who are just listening to the podcast and can't see what we're looking at, it's a pretty straightforward table. On one axis, you see impact, uh, so high impact to low impact. And then the other axis, you have feasibility, high feasibility, low feasibility. And this was done by McKinsey. And 
what they're trying to do is it's under an article about trying to explain blockchain. They're looking at the different industries, about a dozen industries, and seeing where blockchain could have high impact or low impact and how feasible and unfeasible it is to do. Um, And I think it's useful for two reasons. Number one, it reminds people that blockchain is not all about cryptocurrencies. And number two, and that there's, it's a far broader field, just like the internet is not just about email. And uh, secondly, it opens up this discussion about, okay, besides cryptocurrencies or about currencies, what other industries could potentially be impacted by blockchain? So looking at this graph, Stephen, you're an expert. What do you see that you completely agree with? And you're saying like, yep, they nailed it here. And then later, I'll ask you where you disagree. Can I start with what I disagree with? Please. Um, so I, I, as if I am reading the colors right, it has agriculture as uh, uh, low, lower than middle range um, impact. Yeah. Oh, oh agriculture is up there high. Okay. I don't know. Sorry. I, sorry. Uh, uh, hold on. Let me just. No, no, you're right. You're right. It's low. It's kind of it's kind of medium impact and a, and yeah. low and and kind of relatively low feasibility. So I, I think that's incorrect. I think that blockchain could have a huge uh, impact in the agricultural industry around the world. I was recently had a lunch with a guy uh, Reggie Haru who founded HaraChain in Indonesia, and he's using uh, blockchain technology to give smallhold farmers uh, a way to get the information about their their land holdings and their um, uh, agricultural production and their personal data to banks on the blockchain so they can get loans easily rather than going to uh, local loan sharks. That's uh, one way. And I think it's... Hold on one second. Uh, Stephen, uh, I just realized something, the way this this particular... it's a For those who are, watch, who are watching, uh, this is a clickable table. Um, and when I mm-hmm. click on just agriculture, it, it does show low impact, uh, kind of uh, low f- medium impact, low feasibility. But when I actually click on here on the agricultural, it says these are use cases. So here they say very high impact, which is food safety and origin. And then oh, over here, sure, yeah. agricultural supply chain, again, very high impact, medium feasibility. So. And right. let, let's say if I click on financial services, they have all sorts of different. So down here, they have uh, feasibility in the medium and low for micropayments, uh, low impact. And then way off the charts here, high impact is trade and supply chain finance. So basically, the way and you have all these different um, initial coin offerings. Also, and this, what is this one here? Cross-border they say it's high feasibility, high impact is cross-border person-to-person payments. Right. Um, so basically... I'd agree. I'd agree with all those. Okay. Um, so getting back to your agricultural example, um, it, it, what I don't really understand about this, the way McKinsey did this, is that they've the two examples are pretty high on impact, but when you click on the overall average, they put the whole industry as being kind of low, uh, kind of medium impact. I don't know if okay, you... I, I guess what they're, I guess, um, you know, I guess they're looking at a, a broad range of factors uh, mm-hmm. to do with agriculture, but I think I would still disagree with that. I, I don't really see any area of agriculture that, that wouldn't benefit from that, but um, 
Okay. You know, the people at McKinsey are pretty smart. Yeah, and for, yeah they certainly yeah. can be. <laughs> yes. yeah. um, and then here's, let's click on arts and recreation. Let's see what we talked about here. Fine arts investment. They say the feasibility is kind of medium to low um, and mm. impact medium. Um, arts, art prominence, provenance, sorry, uh, medium feasibility, kind of slightly low impact. So, and then gambling and prediction markets. Uh, at the lowest end for the arts and recreation. Um, oh, so, yeah, I think they're way off base on all three. Okay, got um, it. And I and, and I say that because I, I've written about this um, for, you know, a few articles recently, and also in my book. And um, I, there's a lot going on. And uh, you know, Christie's auction house is, is involved with it. There, are, uh, museums are very interested in it. I think that in the, the art world is going to be profoundly affected by a blockchain. Um, what about this whole idea of the government and having you know property title and that kind of stuff? Let's click on property here. And, and here they say land registry would be high feasibility and pretty high impact. Mm. Do you agree? Yeah, yes, I, I do agree. And I think that could be fantastic in the developing world. Yes. And in corrupt, corrupt countries... Uh, I guess Honduras fits in both those categories, and, and there's a, an experiment undergoing there right now. Uh, I just came back from investing. I just came oh, back from ahead. five and a half years in Africa, and there uh, I could see how land title is huge. There's an epidemic of people selling land that they don't actually own, that they don't actually have the title to, and you give them the money. And here's a real funny. Yeah. Here's a real funny story. They have. Uh, Lots of places, especially I saw this in Ghana a lot in Nigeria, where people would spray paint on their property, not for sale. You know, in America, you drive around, you right. see for sale signs. <laughs> in Ghana and uh -huh. Nigeria, I would see not for sale signs because what happens... So that people would know. Yeah, so that some, if somebody takes you, hey, I've got this property to sell you, I've got this plot of land or this whatever, this house... And people, the, the, the potential buyer will see clearly, okay, you're not the owner of this property. And, you know, I'm not going to get a fake sale. Um, but anyway, one way to so explain uh, on a practical level how this could work uh, with title land registry. Would the government own the blockchain? Would it be their own uh, or would it be kind of a public ledger that everybody would um, be able to add on to? Well, it could be either way, but my guess is that um, most of these would be government-run or run by uh, mm -hmm. non-profits. Because mm -hmm. yeah. what you don't want to do is burden the um, the small landholder in the de developing world with the need to um, get heavily involved in the technology. You want to make it um, easy and straightforward for people to register their land. And to do that, the, the chain would have to be decentralized at best or centralized uh, you know with a with an authority who can certify that the land is theirs and also maintain the technology mm. That's, at least at least for at least for now now uh, you talked about art as being one of the f industries that could be impacted by blockchain in mm -hmm. a very positive and impactful way Um Right and obviously cryptocurrencies and and that whole thing. Is there what one or two other sectors that you think are things to watch? Yeah, I think that um, I'm just looking at the the list. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, a lot of people talk about media and technology being impacted. I I, I tend to think that it's that's slow and not really going to happen. 
Why is that? So quickly, although the well, there are different. Um, well, they just had the Internet of Things in that, and yeah. that's definitely uh, has great potential. Uh, I, I can talk about that for a second. Um, yeah. Blockchain, blockchain using smart contracts could have a huge uh, impact on the Internet of Things, and that Internet of Things means connecting devices, electric vehicles, or any kind of uh, any kind of machine to the internet and so hoping that those machines would communicate information with each other and with humans that could make um, systems run much more easily for instance if you had a solar array on your roof and you were selling electricity to a power authority you could have a smart contract an algorithmically run contract that would read how much uh, electricity you put onto the grid and pay you automatically and that's really useful because a lot of those payments would be very small. There would be millions of them. And right now the systems in place aren't really capable of handling that. Fraud prevention would be a big thing. There are, there are ways that you can implant. Um, I mean, if this is fraudulent uh, physical objects, there are ways that you can implant seeds or devices or fingerprints onto objects and track those through the blockchain, and uh, you, someone could always know if something was fake or real. Uh, so there's quite a few, but you think overall that the technology f- field, paradoxically, might not be as low-hanging fruit as everybody thinks, even though blockchain is obviously a technology, and you would think that they would be an early adopter. Yeah, I, th- I was thinking for media, it's not, not okay. low-hanging fruit. Got it. Because the idea there is that people will produce content just like what you're producing today, and that other people will pay them for it through micropayments, through blockchain technology. Mm. And right now, I feel like the user interface is too complicated True. for all of the projects I've seen. And, and the only ones who get involved are truly dedicated um, enthusiasts. What other ones on this list that you would say? I think insurance is huge mm-hmm. for keeping track of, uh, of claims. And uh, I guess they, they agree. Yeah. And payouts, yeah. Oh, they mentioned, and uh, and yeah. the insur- insurance companies are leading the way for sure in, in blockchain use cases. By the way, there's, I don't know if you followed this particular cryptocurrency. I think it's called Miota. Myota. Have you heard of that? Yeah, a little bit, yeah. 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 They're, they're claiming to be uh, helping the Internet of Things with their, mm-hmm. um, and also they have a different type of algorithm. Not They don't use proof of, work in the traditional way in other words they ask every person who does a transaction on their system to do two other transactions before theirs gets done so in other words they've Mm. basically outsourced the work not to specific miners but to basically all the users of the network and so they claim that could give them infinite scalability effectively because the more people use it the more uh, people are are doing the work necessary to keep up the blockchain to make it to make it feasible. That's, that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So there's of course skeptics of this whole idea, but um, their whole claim to fame is that they think that there should be enormous throughput, enormous scalability, and the only way to do that is to kind of offload that work uh, to the people who are actually using it, so that you have to do two two transactions and do the the computation of two transactions for your one transaction so it's a it's an interesting theory but for whatever reason the the 
I, I by the way, full disclosure, I invested a little bit into uh, into their uh, currency, but uh, I'm kind of skeptical myself whether it will actually take off. But you know, these are all. Well, I think there's this big divide. You know, big divide between blockchain purists who want it to be um, just a distributed system that's totally self. Uh, controlled by the people uh, or or nodes on the chain, and then others who want to see distributed ledger technology, of which blockchain is a part, develop and evolve and um, take on other aspects. And I, I think that we have to be flexible and open-minded going forward. Right. Why should somebody buy your book? First of all, because it's re- it's really entertaining and. Um, Believe it or not, a book about technology is really entertaining and it takes you into a world that you probably don't know exists, which is the blockchain culture. And second of all, because um, you want to learn about blockchain without being intimidated or, or um, you know, frightened away by technological talk. Yeah, I think you definitely succeeded big time in doing that. Uh, the, the book is very readable. I got an early copy of it from the, your publisher and uh, it was uh, super easy to read, and somebody who's uh, technophobe or uh, can pick it up and and understand. Um, you toward the end of the book, I just want to I want to close on a couple of things toward the end of the book. Um, you talk about DApps. Uh, can you explain a little bit about what DApps are? We talked about Crypto Kitties, which is I suppose a DApp. Yeah, well, uh, DApps are are the key to the the blockchain use cases. So. Blockchain should be seen as a foundational technology that you might not even notice going forward because what makes it usable and realistic in people's lives are applications. Um, They're just like the applications that you use on the World Wide Web like Spotify or Netflix or all these things. But they're called dApps because they're distributed applications. They're done on a blockchain. So these dApps... um, are what make the the world go round. What make it easy to 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 use? What they're translators of of the technology, so that you can have fun with them. Basically, it's how you're going to use blockchain technology in the future. But a lot of people are criticizing DApps at this point, Stephen. They're saying for all the hype, frankly, there's very very few users of them. Cryptocurrency is one of the only cases that came up and it was really a boom and a bust thing it's not really a big thing anymore in Mm -hmm. 2019 and so um, people are saying yeah there's a ton of dApps being created on the uh, eos uh, blockchain eos blockchain there's of course ethereum is the leader in having the most amount of dApps but so the dApps are proliferating you've got stuff trying to imitate uber trying to imitate airbnb trying to imitate all mm-hmm. sorts of existing apps that are all centralized today. But the bottom line is none of them are getting much traction out there. And so... Yeah, you can go to a website called State of Dapps and you can see it's it's actually shocking how few people are using these dapps. Thank you. So um, my uh, my feeling about that, I mean, it's absolutely, it shocked me when I went on that. My feeling about that is that uh, we're at the, sta- the, at the engineering stage of the blockchain where it's run by engineers and developers. And um, if you look at the help wanted for all these companies, all they hire are engineers and developers, but they need to hire imaginative people and creators and thinkers who are going to make the experience of using these dApps and using the blockchain exciting and easy and uh, fun for people. And I really feel that 
that is not happening. I think it will happen. But that, they, these, these things are hard to use, very hard to use. I lost, I, you know, I told you I bought those pieces of a film called Adams the other day, and then I went to find them, and I had lost them. What? They had disappeared because, because I had restarted my uh, MetaMask oh, thing, and it turns out I had an old MetaMask thing for a year, from a year ago, and blah, blah, blah. And it took me like two hours to figure it out, and I have a lot of experience with this. And so I, I could imagine, um, you know, my stepmother or someone trying to do that, and it would it would drive them insane, and they would throw their computer across the room. So that has to change, or the da- these apps will never take off. And also, they have to be they have to be useful, you know, really useful. And they, I think they also have to be better in some ways yeah. than the existing centralized apps. So in other words, if somebody wants to beat Uber in its game well you got to be better than uber you got to give somebody a reason to say okay i'm not going to use my uber app on my phone i'm going to go to my dap on my phone i suppose and then use that better or cheaper if they're cheaper that will be good but but if it's cheaper it has to be at least as roughly as good it can't or it's got to be a you know if it's going to be worse it's got to be way cheaper in other words it's got to be value right 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 and so yeah i totally totally agree and that that does give me pause you know the the state of the the DAPs. Um, you know, I'm not convinced that this is the the next internet, but I really hope it is. You know, I really hope that this succeeds. I think the potential is fantastic. Right. Um, and so, in your hunt for unicorns, uh, <laughs> we're we're still hunting. <laughs> yeah, it hasn't it hasn't happened yet, but who knows. The, and it's coming. let's end on a, a positive note about the the self-sovereign world that we may be entering into explain a little bit about yeah, what you well, mean by that that to me is so exciting and also i think uh something that will uh sort of be uh will lift all boats if if this takes off and that is if 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 right now we're um we depend on our identity our identity has to be affirmed by all these on the internet by all these organizations that we join, like Facebook, Google, uh, eBay, all these things. And and what we do is we, in return for being identified by these people, we give them access to our data. Right? They come in. We're like crops in the field, and they come in and wipe the crops clean as soon as they grow. I'll wait for them to come back and wipe them clean again. So with blockchain technology, um, we could each have something called a sovereign identity, and so could all the, the billion people in the world who have no ID at all right now. And this sovereign identity would include an affirmation of our names, our existence, our birth date, uh, any data that we wanted to keep on the chain, including health data, legal data, whatever. But we would control who got to see what. And we, would, we could sell that data. If Amazon wanted data on us, we could sell it to them rather than giving it to them. If uh, my daughter went to buy beer at the convenience store, she could just show a, a, a piece of data that said this person is over 21 years old rather than a driver's license that reveals where she lives and all of this information. Um, I think that that is going to give... It's going to levelize the playing field. It's going to take away a lot of the authority of the organizations that now control us, including governments and, and big corporations. I just think it's going to be a game changer. Hmm. 
And there are dApps, you know, that you can go to to establish a sovereign identity now, like Uport, but they're all very difficult to use still. Yeah, that's the the, the big conundrum that they've got to solve is making this useful and uh, valuable. Um, and I think I'm bullish uh, like you are. Um, a lot of people think, but I think also you're not hyperbolic. In other words, you're not, if you read your book, a blockchain, it's not like you're promising nirvana and uh, peace on earth. Uh, you realize that this is going to be a, a struggle and it's not going to be even. And I think that your book is very lucid in helping people understand the technology. And I think in this conversation, we lost probably some people as far as like scratching their heads. And if you're one of those persons scratching your head, not understanding what we're saying, I think you're a perfect candidate for Stephen Williams's book because <laughs> because you break things down. I mean, we kind of, I'm kind of I wouldn't call myself an expert, but I'm not an idiot on blockchain, and so we kind of I asking you some questions that are a little bit less basic. Um, but your book covers everything from the basic to the advanced, and and so I think it 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 really could help the person who's a novice and who wants to know a little bit more about this technology. Where can people get blockchain, the next everything? I imagine Amazon. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, you can buy it at local bookstores or Amazon. Mm-hmm. And um, if you want to check out more information, you can go to stephenpwilliams.com. It's S T E P H E N or I'm on Twitter at, at Stephen Williams, and um, I'm also happy to answer any questions uh, if you want to contact me through Twitter or, or the website. Happy to help. Well, I'm, it is hard to understand, and you know I sympathize with people because I've been through it myself. Yeah, yeah, and it's definitely uh, it, it. It takes a while, but I'm just warning anybody who's listening to this podcast and saying it is a rabbit hole that you could go down to, and you could be losing months of your life. <laughs> It's an addiction, yeah. That's really something. <laughs> We're gonna do a blockchain anonymous rabbit hole, <laughs> people. <laughs> yeah, that's my next project. <laughs> Getting over it. <laughs> and that concludes this episode of the Wander Learn podcast, where we explore travel technology and transformation. If you'd like to see the show notes with links to what we talked about, or if you'd like to comment on the show, or if you'd like to ask me a question then go to wanderlearn.com and click on the latest episode. If you'd like to connect with me, just remember F. Tapon. That's my first initial and my last name. F. Tapon is the username I use on all social media. You can also get to my website by going to ftapon.com. Here's one last reason to remember F. Tapon. If you like what I do and want to get rewarded for supporting my projects, then go to patreon.com slash, yep, you guessed it, F. Tapon. That's where you can pick up some sweet rewards for as little as $1 a month. And remember, subscribing to the WanderLearn podcast helps, but downloading each episode helps even more. Please share the podcast, review it, and sign up for my newsletter at wanderlearn.com. This show was edited by Rejoice Tapon. The music was composed by Eric Stratman. This is Francis Tapon, encouraging you to wander and learn.